The true church hangs by a thread today because of false teaching. I was just in Arizona with the training center men and was forced to remember that I knew of a strong, healthy, Bible-teaching church that now in the course of 15 years is now dabbling in heresy. I bring that up because that is why Peter is warning all believers in all churches about false teachers in chapter 2 of his final letter. Peter describes the doctrine of the heretics in verses 1 and 2, the doom of the heretics in verses 4 through 10, and now the deeds of the heretics in verses 10 through 22. They never announce themselves. They never say, hey, I'm a false teacher. They require us to have discernment. They're people often you trust. They're often zealous and engaging communicators. Men and women who have an external godliness and compelling arguments. But in verses 10 through 22, Peter exposes them. He helps us to see their bad beliefs and their bad behavior. And he lays it out for us as clearly as he possibly can. It almost seems today like the treacherous teachers have won all the battles, but let me declare to you this morning, they have not won the war. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ is still on his throne. Can I hear an amen to that? He is in charge, and his true church still prevails. The truth of God's word is not lost today. It is, though, much harder to find. The attacks of the enemy are not letting up. How do we see it today? Well, how do we see it? Well, you've got social justice where it's victim status, where sinners are excused from their sin because of their race or their sex or their background. You have the indifference to exposition to expose the author's intended meaning leading to doctrinal indifference today. You've got no proper hermeneutic in a way people approach the scripture leading to every possible viewpoint except for the right one. And those leading the church into error are called false teachers. And most often when we hear that term, most of us go, yeah, yeah, that's for somebody else. Sadly, you don't see the danger for your own life. When you realize the danger is personal and you realize the danger is imminent, then you begin to approach it a little differently. That's what Peter's describing here. He's describing the men that you read. He's describing the people that you listen to and those who are influencing your family and your friends. These false teachers are the poisonous pastors, the treacherous teachers, the perjuring professors, the bogus book writers, the humble heretics, the fleshly fraudulent followers. It took me a long time to come up with all that. They tell you that they're genuine. They tell you that they're sincere. But they're sown into the church by the enemy to do two things. And you need to note this. They want to confuse the real believer. And they want to destroy the close or almost Christian, the make-believer. And God knows just how destructive they are. It's found all throughout the scripture, not just in 2 Peter chapter 2. But here he lays it out in verses 10 to 22 to teach you how to identify 
And you can identify them if you take chapter 2 seriously. You take it to heart. How do you recognize the false teacher and the false teaching? Well, he's given us already 20 clues. And we won't even look at all of them today, but by way of review, we should look at some of them. In chapter 2, recall what Peter's been exposing here. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 2. But the false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Understand, they sneak up with you with doctrine that's pretty solid, but in that doctrine, they sneak in error. Remember the illustration? It's like having brownies, but just a little bit of dog excrement in there. And that's what they do. Look at verse 1. They even deny the master who bought them. A Christian or a church who denies Jesus as Lord is is erring into false teaching. Verse 3, take a look. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They use God's sheep, literally the Greek word here, as merchandise. Merchandise. They exploit God's redeemed like numbers on a spreadsheet. Listen, friends, they're all about numbers. When you go to their church, it's about numbers, numbers, numbers. Verse 10, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. They don't walk by the spirit. They walk by the lusts of their flesh. Verse 10, they despise authority. You see it there, verse 10? They don't follow Christ as Lord, but they establish themselves as the authority. Verse 10, they're self-willed. They always want their own way. They're going to get their own way. They're going to talk about their leadership team, etc., but they get their own way. Verse 12, take a look. They're reviling where they have no knowledge. They, They speak evil of things they don't understand. Verse 13, they are stains and blemishes. They they live unholy because, simply stated, they are unholy. Verse 13, they're reveling in their deceptions. They believe their own lies. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. They treat women as conquests. And they only look at women as objects of lust. And again, they use all people, all people, for their own gratification. This is all about them. Even though they talk a good Jesus, it's about them. Verse 14, enticing unstable souls. They'll pursue entrapping the almost Christian the one who's not quite a Christian yet, they're in the context of the church or something, and they love to corrupt the new believer, or at least confuse them. Verse 14, having a heart trained in greed, these false teachers are like athletes. They work out. They're they're constantly working with weights and so that they could be good at the sport of money. Of money. They're in the gym of sin, pumping weights, working out ways to get more money from God's people. That's what they do. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They're still on the broad road to destruction. Verse 17, they are springs without water. They do not quench spiritual thirst of the hearers. Though they may move you emotionally and you may get a wow experience emotionally, they will not be spiritually nourished as you listen. Verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they speak great swelling words of emptiness, literally there. They can impress you with their practical, earthly wisdom, extensive knowledge, beautiful vocabulary, amazing fluency, but they're bags of wind. They're full of hot air. In fact, they will give you helpful tips on how to parent, how to love your spouse, how to improve your sex life, but they will not be God's transforming words. They will be earthly wisdom. 
and they draw a, a crowd with that context. All these chapter 2 truths show us they mix cultural thinking into Scripture, diminishing its power to change lives. They love lust and greed, and they use people to get what they want. They ultimately destroy the clarity of the gospel by diluting it, distorting it, and they redefine terms now. That's the new wave. Redefining what certain things mean, and most often they will cause hurt and division within the context of the church. So the church is so wounded that the church stops looking to Christ, the church stops looking to begin to proclaim the lost or establishing churches because they're so wounded, they have to then look inward upon themselves. For five weeks now, we've looked at 2 Peter 2, 11, all the way through 22, and all these clues fell under seven major headings to tell us what? to sharpen your discernment so you can determine who is true and who is false, to cause you to grow in your love of your Savior who is truth, to motivate you to share the gospel with those who do not know or believe in accurate salvation, to come alongside believers who are confused by their teaching. Understand there's an incredible connection between our Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. You know that, right? If you don't love the Word, you don't love the Lord. If there's not a sense of wanting to obey the word, it's like, I don't want to obey Christ. It is the living and active word, and they're seeking to undermine that. We've studied their first primary sins, infiltrating instructions, instructors, functioned by feelings, and they despise authority. Those are the two big ones. Their pride is, of course, they think they can do anything they want. Their predisposition is that they're predisposed to three things. They want to oppose the work of God subtly. They want to malign the person of Christ carefully, and they want to distort the only true gospel somehow to keep you from salvation. Their passion is greed over godliness. Their passion is wealth over worship. And their penalty, of course, is the torment of blackness found in eternal hell. Their persuasion is they promise you freedom, but they only deliver enslavement to sin. And then ultimately, Peter wraps this up now. This is our last week in 2 Peter chapter 2. He gives a final warning to Christians and churches. Number seven in your outline is their prison. Their prison. All false teachers would say they're free, but they're in a living prison. A prison. You say, what is that prison like? Well, take a look at verse 20, 21, and 22. And you read silently as I read aloud. It says this. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they again are again entangled in them and are overcome by them. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Verse 21, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. And it has happened, verse 22, to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. Wow, what a passage. What does Peter mean in verse 20 when it says, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the last state is worse than the first. Well, that word 
defilements in the world or of the world is the idea of pollution. It's found in this world. Literally, it describes poisonous vapors. And Peter's trying to make a point here. Our very nature is sinful, and it is defiant before God, before we know Christ. And we live on a world which is rotten and in rebellion to God. With the word defilements, meaning noxious vapors, Peter's saying sin is so bad and it is so much around us, it's like sin is in the very air we breathe. It's like poisonous gas that we breathe in. We breathe in the poisonous vapors of sin all the time. This is part of what it means to live on this planet. Now, Peter's not calling you to be some sort of environmentalist to deal with the obnoxious gases. But he's declaring this world is saturated with sin. Morally, the world gives off a deadly putrid influence. These treacherous teachers at some point in their lives escaped. They avoided, they successfully ran away from these unholy influences found in the world. For a time, you might want to write this down, these hypocrites seemed holy. For a time, these hypocrites appeared to be holy. And Peter's describing their past situation. At some point in the past, these false teachers and their followers wanted to escape the moral contamination of the world system, and they sought a religion. They were attracted to the church, and they liked the Christianity as a religion, and they liked to hang with Jesus, and so they became a part of the church of Jesus Christ. But remember, as you see this description, you cannot separate verse 20 here from verse 1, correct? They're still in the same context. And what does it say in verse 1? It says in verse 1 of chapter, of chapter 2, they deny the master. In their false faiths with their corrupt Christianity, Jesus is not in charge as Lord. His word is not the authoritative truth of God's word. And they are not submitting to the Lord and responding to salvation His way, the only way. These deceiving disciples want a Christian faith on their terms, not on Christ. They, they wanted a form of Christianity that's not found in the Bible. Friends, you've got to understand this one more time. The most popular Christianity today is not the one in the Bible. It's the one that people make up in their own minds. That's what we're dealing with. They wanted the forgiveness and freedom of salvation, but not according to the truth of God's word, not with surrender and submission to Christ, not with obedience to the word of God, and not with, most importantly, repentance of sin. These false teachers were never genuinely converted to Christ. See, once you're born again, you know this is true, you cannot be unborn. Once you're secure in Christ, you can never be unsecured. Once you're held by the Savior, He cannot let you go. Can I hear an amen to that? He can't. John 10, 28, I give eternal life to them. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that's the Lord King God telling you no one is going to snatch them out of His hand. But these false followers heard the true gospel, joined the church, but they rejected the true Christ in their heart. They were professors, but they were not possessors. They knew about Christ, but they did not know Him intimately, personally, convertedly. The New Testament clearly distinguishes between people who are in the church and people who are in Christ who are true followers. There are a lot of people in the church 
but they're not in Christ. They're not always the same people. And this distinction is clearly seen with the false teacher. What you have is they weren't born again. They were not inwardly regenerated and transformed. They may appear to be like Christians, but it's only skin deep on the outside. Only on the outside. They're not made new, regenerated, or converted. And Peter is giving us a sweet reminder of what genuine salvation is and also a very sincere and very serious warning to everyone in the church. You say, what is it? Well, the sweet reminder is the only way to escape sin with all its pollutions in this world is through verse 20. Look at it. It is the intimate personal knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That word knowledge there is personal knowledge. It's relational knowledge. It's intimate knowledge. And he says that is genuine salvation, the personal intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. The false teacher's knowledge of Christ is merely their head. It is not a knowledge of the heart. They knew about Christ, but they don't know him as being one with him and intimate with him. See, when salvation is genuine, you know personally, intimately, Jesus Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And only through that same Holy Spirit can you overcome the lust of the flesh and any entanglements with the sinful defilements of this world. Again, Galatians 5.16, look at it in your outline there, you know it. But I say, walk by the Spirit, the Spirit who indwells all genuine Christians. Walk by that Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So here's Peter warning to all the church. Verse 20, look what it says. They are, verse 20, the second half, again entangled in them, and are overcome, and the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, who is this, Peter? What are you talking about? A person who has seemingly come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and with it temporarily and externally escaped the pollution of the world is in serious trouble. You say, what's their serious trouble? When he or she becomes entangled in those sins again. When they're overcome by those sins. These evil educationalists and their corrupt cohorts are lost and still enslaved to sin. But by joining the church, they begin to learn about who Christ is and what he's done on the cross. And they started imitating his behavior and imitating the behavior of the born again. And they seek to live in holiness. And through personal self-discipline and tough choices and external imitation, it looks as if they've escaped the contamination of this world and the many binding sins. They stop going to bad movies. They don't get drunk anymore. They seem to stop living immoral. And they speak as if they no longer are proud. You know, they speak in whispers. Because that's what humble people do. Oh, let me tell you about Jesus. They find shelter in the midst of God's true loving and giving people. And they're personally comforted by their own false conversion to Christ. But all of their phony, external, impressive lifestyle is temporary. It's temporary. Peter says it's obvious they are counterfeit Christians when they, verse 20, and again, look at it, the second half, they get entangled in the world's defilements and are overcome. The Apostle John told us in 1 John and Revelation that real believers are not overcome. Real believers are actually overcomers. Take a look at what he says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, there in your outline. Whatever is born of God overcomes the what? The world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now catch this before you get too panicky. Real believers struggle with their sin. Make believers are buried by their sin. True saints fight with their sin. Phony church attenders accommodate their sin. Those born twice confess their sin. Those born only once cover their sin. Christians battle with sin. Non-Christians are overcome by it. Without genuine salvation, they don't have the grace to overcome the power of sin or to walk by the Spirit or to persevere in the faith. They don't have that ability. Therefore, they eventually sink back, this passage says, sink back into the pollution of the world and reject the true gospel. So Peter says in verse 20, the last state has become worse for them than the first. You know that, you say, what is he talking about there? Jesus repeatedly taught that those who understand the truth and still turn away will face a greater judgment. Let me say that again. Those who understand the truth but turn away will face a greater condemnation. Jesus said it in Matthew 10, 14, and 15. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it will not be more tolerable in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. In God's economy, it is better for people to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then after that to turn away from Christ and his word. That's how Peter helps you face the danger in verse 21. For it would be better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than having known it, he says in verse 21, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. These verses are describing the defection of the false teachers and their informed followers. They claim to be living for Christ. Peter calls it, verse 21, the way of righteousness. That's the way. That's the right way. The way of righteousness. Where we're covered in righteousness. Christ's righteousness. And they even had access to accurate teaching of Scripture. Take a look at verse 21. Look at the word before the way of righteousness. Known. They know the way of righteousness. They have known the way, the right way of righteousness. But by their lives, now they demonstrate they ultimately reject Christ. And get this, false teachers are not made outside Christianity. False teachers are always bred in the church. But eventually they reject sound truth and they adopt an inaccurate, lesser, heretical view, maybe just in their heart. But as they do, they always try to seduce others to justify their sinful choices, right? When you're wanting to do something bad, don't you want other people to do that bad with you? Come on, would you admit it? Come on, adults. We didn't grow out of that, all right? When you were a kid, you were going to do something wrong. You wanted all your friends there, so you all go down. And that's exactly what a false teacher wants. He wants others to go down with him. And they have rejected Christ as the only way, rejected his death for the forgiveness of sins, his resurrection from the dead, and they have turned away. They declare they love Christ. They declare they love his word. But what they do is they start redefining his word. And then they start misusing his word. And then they start maligning his word. They're the weedy or rocky soil that never produced any Christ-like fruit. They're the tares who look like the wheat. 
They're the goats who look like the sheep. They're the lukewarm who are neither hot nor cold. They're like Judas among the other 11, close to Christ, but unconverted. The Lord Jesus taught the same thing when he sent the 12 disciples to proclaim to the cities of Israel the Messiah had come. He said, shake the dust off their feet in any city that would not receive them. And in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15, look again, we'll look at the same passage again. I say to you, Jesus says, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city, for that city. It is a very serious thing to be exposed to the light of the gospel and then reject it for darkness. Very serious thing. The judge you face in the future says it is far more serious when you reject the truth than to reject a human theory, to reject evolution, humanism, some philosophy. I know a lot of Christians, oh, I don't believe in that. Listen, that's great, but you are rejecting the truth of who Christ is and what he's done as the only way of salvation. The Lord, the Bible, the gospel are the only truth. The only truth. On judgment day, the poor pagan will receive a lighter sentence than you students who turn away from a Christian upbringing. Or you, the spouse that rejects your mate's incredible godly example and constant pleadings about the gospel and the word. They'll receive a lighter sentence than the churchgoer who rejects their profession of faith. The pagan will be able to say to God, I never knew you had a son. I, nobody ever told me that Christ de- died for my sins, though he will be without excuse. But the outright Christ rejecter, rejecter will find his mouth shut and his heart failing. When confronted by the Lord in glory, better never born than never born again. Especially after having been taught and brought to the true belief and then aborted by your own unbelief. Because they face a greater condemnation, fake teachers and their students would be better off not learning the scripture or perceiving doctrine. Then having understood it, then they alter it. Anyone who continually spurns the only way of salvation will eventually, at some point, be left without the ability to respond to Christ. Say, where do you get that? Take a look at Hebrews. Gives a very similar warning. They will be left without any hope of eternal life. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. We won't know this, but Christ will know who they are. And this is a description of them. It says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and of the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. This describes the almost Christian. This describes the make-believer, someone who's close, someone who's in our midst, but they never come to Christ. They never repent of their sin. They're never born again. You say, that's harsh. No, it's not. You forgot what chapter 2 already taught us. These poison pastors deny the Lord, they introduce destructive heresies, they are experts in greed, they indulge the flesh, they despise all authority, they are continually deceptive. Listen, God does not offer an eternal life insurance policy that allows you to accept Christ and then not follow Him. 
That's no such thing in the scripture. Nor to be born again and then to lust after the flesh as a way of life, a lifestyle. Nor to commit our lives to Christ and then live like the devil as a lifestyle. That's not Christianity. That's pure hypocrisy. And that is the false teaching that Peter's exposing in chapter 2. Now, Peter wraps it up in verse 22. You want to look at it. It says this, It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. To illustrate what Peter's telling here, he shares two very vivid examples <laughs> One from Proverbs 26, 11, and the other from an ancient secular adage. To punctuate his point, Peter uses two contemptible animals in ancient times. Dogs and pigs. Dogs were rarely kept as the obvious preferable pet in the first century. Obvious. For the Jews back then, dogs were half-wild, dirty, diseased, dangerous mongrels who lived off garbage and refuse and were even willing to eat their own vomit. Blech. Pigs represented filth, being synonymous with uncleanness, always returning to the muck. And Peter's saying false teachers, these poisonous pastors and bogus book writers will always return to their filth. Why? Because it's in their nature. They're going back to the way they were because this is who they truly are. That's what he's saying. This is who they truly are. They've not been born again. They don't have a new nature. Therefore, they will eventually act according to their old, fallen, sinful, corrupt nature, which is unclean and smutty. Peter's telling your readers, those churches back in Asia, and he's telling you, don't be shocked by what a false teacher does. They're just behaving according to their nature, their fallen nature, like a dog that eats vomit or a pig that returns to the mire. And Christians, stay away from a false teacher. Like you'd stay away from a disgusting, vile creature. We're interviewing a couple elders at a church on our church tour, and there's a cat wandering around the room. And I'm just asking God, please, please keep it away. Please. I was worried about allergies, but it's a cat. Don't argue with false teachers. Don't try to convince them. Don't try to debate them. You can't change their nature. Only Christ can convert their inner person. Only the gospel can transform their nature. Only true salvation can make them a new person. Share with them, plead with them to turn to Christ who loves them. To turn to Christ. Don't engage in their error. Just share the gospel. They need Christ to transform them. False teachers need to be changed from pigs to sheep. And the only way for you and I to ever be made right with God or to go to heaven and be transformed is for you or I at some point to despise our own sinfulness before a holy God. To by faith to rely on Christ and what he did on the cross by bearing God's wrath on the cross for our sin and bearing all of God's punishment for your sin rose from the dead and now has the ability, if your sin falls on Christ, his righteousness can cover you. And because of that, you can stand before a holy God forever. Christ must cause you 
to be born again, for you to have a new nature. You only have one nature, friends. You either have an old nature or a new nature. You don't have an old and a new nature. You just have one nature. And you need a new, transformed, born-again nature. So you can escape the slavery of the old nature. You can escape the slavery of sin. But to not live like a sinful pig and to become a child of God, you must turn to Christ. You must turn to Christ. You have only one nature, either an old pig nature or a new desire to please Christ nature, and false teachers will always return to the disgusting pig or dog living because they only have a fallen nature. It can only live according to their old disgusting nature. My friend, sadly today, in contemporary Christianity, there are many false teachers very similar to the ones Peter describes in chapter 2. Sometimes they appear super godly. Sometimes they appear super humble. Sometimes they seem to speak the right words, but they're altering the meaning of what they're saying, and they're trying to lead you down a path. These poison pastors at first sought to morally reform their own lives and spiritually get close to God. Many became teachers in the church and professors in seminary and Christian authors, but tragically, like dirty dogs and unclean pigs, they eventually returned to their own lifestyle outwardly rejecting the only one who can truly save them, transform them, forgive them, and make them a home in heaven. In the first century, these fakes called themselves prophets. They called themselves apostles with a little a. Peter says, don't listen to them. You say, who do we listen to, Chris? Well, that's chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The true prophets and the true apostles the one that God used to record his living written word, those are the ones. You say, well, how do we know who's who and who? You have to come back next week. And next week, we start the celebration of the return of Jesus Christ. So I can hardly wait for that. So take this home. Number one, don't play with sin. Don't play with sin. There are only two kinds of so-called Christians who live in continual unrepentant sin. You know, when you're dealing with somebody and they're just ongoing sinful lifestyle, they can only be one of two things. Are you ready? Listen, somebody who's in continual... Now, I'm not talking about just they, they sinned and they confess and they move on. I'm talking about somebody who's living in ongoing sin. There are only two options. One is they are, right now, they are tragically disobedient awaiting God's discipline. I want to write that down. They're disobedient awaiting God's discipline. If they're not that person who's awaiting God's discipline, being disobedient, then they are deceived awaiting damnation. That's it. There's only two possibilities. If someone is in ongoing continual sin, they're either disobedient awaiting discipline because God promises always to spank his own children, or they are those who are deceived awaiting damnation. Continual, ongoing, rebellious, intentional sin requires repentance. For the Christian, it requires repentance that you seek repentance from sin. You ask the Lord to help you. You bring around other believers around you because you want to please Christ. You don't want to be spanked. You don't want to be taken home shamefully. For the unbeliever, repentance so that you can turn to Christ in dependent faith for salvation. Christian, God says he will spank you if you remain in sin. Non-Christian, God says he will condemn you if you remain in sin. 
And here's the, here's the kicker. Here's where it gets hard. Sin blinds people. It's blinding. And sometimes you don't even recognize it. Sometimes there are people around you who are trying to get your attention. They're trying to tell you that you're blinded by your sin. And you've got to listen. You've got to listen. If you saw how holy, how righteous, how perfect, how glorious Jesus Christ was, you would beg him for forgiveness. Number two, live under the reality of hell. Live under the reality of hell. False teachers, their followers, and all those without Christ will be judged, and it will be eternally awful. In fact, Peter continually reminds his readers in chapter 2 of the reality of hell. And look at verse 1, bringing, look at it now, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Hell's coming quickly. Verse 3, their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Their judgment's going to happen. Verses 4 through 8, their judgment is certain as fallen angels, as the pre-flood world, as Sodom and Gomorrah. And verse 9, look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And verse 17, look at it. For whom the black darkness has been reserved. Your rebellion, your choices to smear God's character, my choices, your defiance, to do your own thing, your disobedience, your lies, complaining, unthankfulness, harshness, lack of love, fear, lusting, result in eternal torment forever. It is defiance against God unless your sin is judged on Christ and His righteousness covers you. Because if that does not happen, if you are not in Christ, you will be awake in torment in blackness forever. And today we learned it would be more severe for the phony Christian student who was raised with Christian parents. It'll be more severe for the phony Christian who attends a Bible teaching church. It'll be more severe for the phony Christian who understands but then rejects the gospel. Number three, pursue intimacy with Christ. Why, why toy with Christ? Trust Him. Why, why, why just taste faith? Be that person who delights in the Father. The greatest source of joy and delight in the heart of a Christian is to intimately know Jesus Christ. To intimately know Him. And you grow in greater intimacy when it comes from knowledge of the Word and understanding of doctrine and seasons of prayer and, and testing of trials and living with the awareness of God's providence every single day, searching out His amazing attributes. That is so easy to say. It is so difficult to do. It will require discipline and hard choices, rejecting good things so that you can pursue the best things and surrounding yourself with those who intimately know Christ. The greatest source for being able, the greatest source for being able to identify that which is false is to intimately know the one who alone is true. Paul says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very sober passage. 
We thank you, Father, that you are one who can take your word and by your spirit open hearts. We pray that you might begin that process of opening hearts so that there would be some who might respond to you, some who might see their need to turn to you and to be born again and that they would cry out to you that you would open their heart. Father, for the rest of us, help us to seriously talk to those around us who are marginal, who believe an off-center gospel. And Father, call them to walk in obedience to your word, to call them to be dependent upon your spirit so that they might walk in obedience and walk in intimacy with you, that they might know you and walk with you and know the joy of a relationship with you. We pray, Father, that you would do so for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.